In recent years, uh, this notion of truth has really come upon hard times in our society. In our society, um, you know, if you claim that, that there is something uh, that is universally true for all people, you're probably going to be labeled as an intolerant bigot, as it just showed right here in this video. I mean, the common notion is that whatever is true for me is true for me, and whatever is true for you is true for you, and, and we shouldn't try to impose our beliefs on anyone else. But there's a big problem with this, and it's simply that truth does matter. Truth really does matter. In Britain, there's a popular magazine for hikers and for mountain climbers. It's called Trails. And in Trail Magazine, back in February of 2004, they printed directions for how to descend from the summit of a mountain called Ben Nevis. Ben Nevis is the highest mountain in Britain, and it has a particularly difficult descent uh, from the summit, particularly because bad weather or dense fog can blow in just at any given moment and make it very hard to descend. So Trail Magazine printed directions using compass bearings on how to descend, so that way even through the dense fog you can get down safely. Now, the problem was that if you follow the directions exactly, it would lead you right off the north face of the mountain where you would then plummet a thousand feet to your death. Little problem. And the issue was that they forgot to include one key step in, this, in the instructions there. And they quickly retracted that. They, they, they revised it to give the correct instructions. But it highlights the importance of truth. That there are some things that you don't want ambiguity. You don't want fuzziness. You don't want to allow for a difference of opinions. Because truth really does matter. Especially when you get to the big things in life. Now there are some things that it's fine to have a difference of opinion on. I think about blenders. What's the best blender? Well, you can, you can have a difference of opinion on blenders. You can have a difference of opinion on what's the best band of all time. Who's the best quarterback in the NFL? What's the best uh, meatloaf recipe? What's your favorite book? These are all things where ambiguity and difference of opinion is perfectly fine. But the problem is when you transfer that ambiguity in your thinking to other bigger topics in life, such as the spiritual realm, that's when you run into problems. Because messing with truth, messing around with ambiguity in those things, fuzziness in your beliefs when it comes, say, to the spiritual realm, is dangerous. It's actually even more dangerous uh, than, than messing around with the instructions and how to get off of Ben Nevis. Uh, truth really does matter when we talk about these big things in life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, the importance of truth. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're in a series right now that is walking through seven letters that Jesus sent to seven ancient churches in a region called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Before we dig into that, I just want to just switch gears for just a moment. Um, many of you are aware that I've been dealing with some eye issues this last week. My wife put it out on Facebook, and there's a lot of support, a lot of prayers for that. Uh, yesterday's Forever Families event, um, vast majority of my time there, um, I was in conversations about what's going on with my eye, or how is my eye doing. Um, so just here's the update, so I can just give it like this, rather than a bunch of individual conversations. Uh, my eye is doing better. Um, I have an eye condition. Uh, it's called corneal erosion. I've had it for about four years or so. Um, if you get squeamish about things, you can turn off your ears for a few seconds here. So I'll describe what it is. Um, basically, my eyes get very dry, especially when they're closed, such as when I'm sleeping at night. And then when they get that dry, the inside of the eyelid sticks to the eyeball, 
And then when I open my eyes, usually involuntarily when I wake up, it tears the surface of the eyeball. So it's not very comfortable. Um, and that happens, unfortunately, on a regular basis. I do use ointment at night when I sleep to try to alleviate it, but it still doesn't always alleviate it. And this week I had probably the worst occurrence of corneal erosion that I've ever had. It was very painful. Um, if you see me squinting or if you see my eye, kind of strange color and stuff, that's the story of what's going on. Um, it's much better today than it was over the last few days. Um, it's not contagious. You won't get it by shaking my hand or by looking at me. Uh, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but that's the story. So I do appreciate the care and the prayers. Um, but again, if you're wondering what's going on with his eye or how come he's squinting up there, that's the story. Um, but I want to turn our attention now back to Revelation chapter 2. So let's go to God in prayer and then we'll dig into this passage. Our Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you are a God of truth, that you are not ambiguous, that you are not um, hiding from us, but that you have given us scripture to clearly reveal who you are, that you sent your son Jesus Christ to manifest your character and your identity so that we could learn about you. And I pray that as we open to Revelation chapter 2 today, that you will be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit will illumine your word to our hearts and to our minds, and that we will learn your truth in fresh ways and then apply it to our lives. That we will not merely be hearers of the word, but doers of the word who really are applying what you're calling us to do in our lives. And so we lift up this time praying that it really will be fruitful uh, in applying your truth. We lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your, in your Bibles as I read Revelation chapter 2, picking up in verse 12. This is to uh, the, a letter that Jesus wrote to the church in a city called Pergamum. He writes, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also hold to those who teach, uh, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, the main message that Jesus is communicating here is that there is some, some spiritual or theological compromise taking place in this church of Pergamum. Now, theological is a word that we don't use that much in today's society, but it's simply talking about what a person's beliefs in God are. And the issue is that in this church of Pergamum, the beliefs in God have been compromised from what is biblical and what is true. Now, Jesus doesn't start out that way. He starts out talking about this reality that they're living in the midst of ungodly influences. He says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, Satan is a real spiritual being who is scheming constantly on how to take down God's people. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And these, these Christians in Pergamum are deep in enemy territory. Jesus says, you live where Satan has his throne. It's saying Satan is very, very active there in deceiving people, to turn people away from God's truth, which is a big deal because, again, truth matters. Now, one of the things we know about Pergamum in terms of the ungodly influences there is that it was a center of pagan worship. There was a lot of worship of other so-called gods and goddesses. In addition, there was the imperial cult, which we talked about last week, where people were, were really compelled, almost required at times, to worship the emperor of the Roman Empire. So these things were going on in Pergamum, making it a hard place for Christians to live. Uh, but Jesus, he's not calling them to leave Pergamum. Remember, he says that we should be in the world, but not of the world. That, that we should not live in a Christian bubble but on the other hand, neither should we be conformed to the ways of the world around us. So he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, and he says all this to commend them. To say, you know what, you all are doing a good job in some things. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So he says, you know what, you all have faced oppression you, you, your lives have been in danger, but you have remained faithful to me in name. That you are still calling yourselves Christian. You're not backing down. You're not pulling away. You're still identifying yourselves publicly as Christians. Even when Antipas, which we don't know that much about him, but he lived in Pergamum. He, he was a Christian and he was put to death for his faith in Christ. And even in the face of that type of danger, the Christians there were still not renouncing their faith in Jesus. They were still publicly identifying themselves with Jesus, even in the face of danger. Now, here's a question for you, all a little trivia. What do you think is the fastest growing religious demographic in America today? Fastest growing religious demographic, what do you think? The nuns? Were you in first service today? You remember it from a few months ago? When I, what? Oh, you're well educated. Yes, the nuns, these Catholic women who take vows of obedience, chastity, and not that nun. Yeah, that's N U N. These are the N O N E S. Those who, if asked about their religious affiliation, would say, "I'm none of the above." They don't affiliate as a Christian or as a Muslim or as a Jew or a Hindu or Buddhist or, or Baha'i or Satanist or any of that stuff. They would just say, I'm none of the above. This is the fastest growing religious demographic in America today with nearly a quarter of Americans claiming no affiliation religiously. Now we have to recognize that a significant portion of these nuns previously had an association with, with Christianity. They grew up in church. Uh, they, they probably in the past would have called themselves a Christian. But over the course of time, they have decided, you know what, I'm not a Christian any longer. I am just nothing. I just kind of do my own thing spiritually if I believe in any spiritual realm at all. Now, this is a fast-growing um, demographic here in America. But this did not characterize the Christians in Pergamum. They were not becoming nuns. They were not completely abandoning Christ. The issue is that they were compromising. 
Now, Jesus had commanded them that they still publicly identify as Christians. Again, they were not a nun. They were just, they weren't completely pagan. They weren't identifying as pagans. They, they just, they had compromised though. Jesus said, verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, if Jesus is talking with you and he's just been commending you for some stuff, you never want to hear him say, nevertheless. You know what? You've been doing a lot of good things. Nevertheless, let me share these things with you that aren't as good. You don't really want to hear that, but that's what the church in Pergamum heard. And so if we don't want to be that type of uh, Christian or that type of church who hears, well, you're doing good things. Nevertheless, you need to work on this. Let's, let's pay attention to what Jesus says here. He's, 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 he has an issue with them because they have compromised on God's truth. They've compromised God's truth. Look with me to verses 14 and 15. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so here we have the names of, of these different groups that maybe kind of foreign to us. So we may wonder, okay, what's going on here? It's obviously not good, but who are these different people? Well, you first of all have Balaam and Balak. We can read about them back in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a pagan prophet, and Balak was a pagan king. And the king hired the prophet to pronounce a curse upon the Israelites. Now, Balaam the prophet tried to do that, but God worked in such a way that the curse actually came out as a blessing upon the Israelites, which Balak, who hired him to curse the Israelites, didn't like at all. And so Balaam then came up with a plan that he gave to Balak to do of let's try to entice the Israelite men with these pagan women. You know, women can oftentimes be the downfall of men. That's what happened actually many, many times through Israel's history. And these pagan women came and began to seduce the, the Israelite men. I mean, they slept together, all kinds of immorality and stuff like that. But as these women uh, grabbed a hold of the hearts of these Israelite men, the women also enticed these men from Israel to worship the pagan gods. And so, so there is this, this false teaching, this enticement, this seduction, where then the Israelites began to turn their back on the one true God. And Jesus is saying that same type of thing is taking place there in the church in Pergamum. And it's taking place through a group called the Nicolaitans. He said, you, likewise, you also, just like Balaam and Balak uh, led astray ancient Israel, so the Nicolaitans are leading astray you Christians there in Pergamum. Because there are some among you who hold to this teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. We really don't. Uh, one of the other places we do see it, though, is earlier in chapter 2 in the letter to the church in Ephesus, verse 6. Jesus says to them, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it's very clear that Jesus does not like the Nicolaitans. Now, there are some people in our culture who would say, You know, I didn't know Jesus could hate anything. Because some people's view of Jesus is all warm and fuzzy and just so gracious and so loving and so tender, kind of like Mr. Rogers with a beard, that you really, you can't have him saying anything bad about anyone. But here he says very plainly, Jesus is saying, I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Ephesians had some major problems in their church. 
that at least they did not succumb to this false teaching from the Nicolaitans. The Pergamum Christians, on the other hand, did succumb to it. I mean, they, they, they allowed this teaching to enter their midst. And, and we have to recognize there are several different ways that we can be unfaithful to God. I mean, one way is just completely turning our back on him, becoming a nun, or following another religion, or just saying, I don't want anything to do with him, and openly rebelling against him. That's not what the Christians from Pergamum were doing. They were actually instead, the second way to be unfaithful to God is simply by compromising, where outwardly they are still identifying with Christ. But inwardly, and through their actions, through the day-to-day lives, there is compromise that is entering in. And that's what's happened with the teaching of these Nicolaitans. Now, probably what, what happened there was these Nicolaitans came, and they're teachers, they're, they're, they're people who believe things contrary to Scripture, but it probably looks enticing still. It might have, it's probably actually had some similarities to biblical teaching. And there were probably some people in the church who thought, no, that actually sounds pretty good. Uh, I, I think I agree with that. And so they began to listen to these teachings more and more. Uh, and unfortunately, no one put a stop to it. They tolerated that in their midst. Even church leaders, I mean, we don't know, maybe the church leaders were involved in, in this, or at the very least, if the church leaders were aware of it, which you would imagine since it was clear that, that there, there were some in the midst who hold, held to those teachings, the church leaders didn't do anything to stop it. They just tolerated it in their midst, and this false teaching spread throughout. I mean, other passages talk about this false teaching spreading like gangrene through a church community. And Jesus is calling them out, saying, you know what? You all need to stop this, and you, you need to repent. And we, we realize that it doesn't take that long, if you begin to compromise, for a practice of compromise to become a pattern of compromise, to become a lifestyle of compromise. So that's why we have to be careful to hold faithfully to God's truth. Now, back then, these compromises came in the form of uh, sexual immorality, which is actually still pretty relevant today. Uh, it also came in, in the form of um, idolatry. I imagine that uh, perhaps one way this could have taken place is at the pagan temples, there were big feasts, these, these very, um, I mean, I imagine pretty tasty meals. But you could go there as part of your worship of, of a pagan deity, and perhaps the Nicolaitans were were convincing the Christians that, you know what, it's fine for you to go there, be a part of that meal, be immersed in the community. Um, you know what, yeah, even if it's um, pagan worship, God will give, give you grace. He'll forgive you. I mean, that's why Paul in, in the book of Romans talks about, shall we sin so that grace may abound? No, that, that's wrong. Um, but these Christians here were committing various, I mean, compromises that were pulling them away from God. And we can have similar types of false teachings that can infiltrate our church as well. I mean, whether it's here at Freedens or this church in general here in America, I think, for instance, of what's known as the health and wealth gospel. This idea that if you faithfully follow Jesus, he will make you prosper, that you will be healthier, that you'll make more money, that you'll be more popular. I mean, this can be enticing. There are a lot of books out there about this. There are churches and pastors who teach this. But it doesn't mean it's true. But, but this can make people very focused on materialism and pull them away from God. It's a false teaching that can infiltrate a church. I think as well about our culture's values of sexuality and, and purity or lack thereof, um, about how those two are, are infiltrating churches. 
the, the, the values of our culture more and more are, are becoming the values of certain types of churches where, where rather than following biblical values, those get reinterpreted in light of what our culture wants to do now. It's false teaching that can infiltrate the church, that can change the practices of the church. There's this, this movement uh, that, that was more prominent probably a decade ago, but it's called the Emerging Church. It's, it's a group of pastors and, and church leaders and authors um, who are saying, you know what? We are so divided as Christians because of religious beliefs and doctrine. What we really need to do is just get back to loving God and loving other people and get rid of doctrine. Doctrine, um, we don't need that anymore. Just love God, love others. And, and I like this idea of love God, love others. But the problem was that they're watering things down so much that then, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you love God and love others. It ceases at that point to hold on to biblical truth. And it ceases at that point even potentially to be biblical Christianity. But that idea can invade the church where it says, you know what? It doesn't matter that much what we believe as long as we are loving. And again, loving is good. But what we believe is also important because truth does matter. I also think about this notion, again, popular in our culture, that all roads lead to God. It's false teaching. You don't, don't see that backed up in Scripture at all. Yet, there are churches even right here in this area who believe that and practice that. They believe that Christianity is just one strand, one way to get to God. But you know what? There are other valid ways too. That's, that's not an uncommon teaching that churches can begin to internalize and live out. And this is why Jesus calls, when we are in that type of um, place of compromise, he calls for repentance. Now, many people today would probably wonder, why are you making such a big deal out of this? I mean, why don't you just live and let live? I mean, let people believe what they want to believe. You believe what you want to believe. Um, don't you dare impose that on other people. People wonder, why are you making a big deal out of this? Why don't you just all coexist as religions? I mean, you've seen these bumper stickers that pretty much just try to water all religions down to the lowest common denominator. It's kind of this ecumenical movement. Um, the issue is truth really does matter. It matters to God. I mean, you can see this through Jesus. I think of Jesus. Um, I mean, John 1, 14, Jesus said, um, I've come from the Father full of grace and truth. He's full of grace, but he also came from the Father full of truth, because truth matters. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking with this woman at a well. She's a Samaritan woman from a different type of religious background. And they're having this dialogue about, um, about religious beliefs. And at one point, Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I mean, it's important to worship God in spirit, to worship him wholeheartedly. But you also need to worship him in the truthfulness of who he is, because truth matters. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with uh, some of his followers. There's already been a debate in this chapter about who is Jesus. Jesus says in chapter 8, verses, 30 and 30, or verses 31 and 32, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Our culture says, you know what? You are really free when you let go of truth. Then you're free to believe whatever you want. But Jesus says, no. Once you come to know me, he says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. He says a few verses later, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Truth 
really does matter to Jesus. So a little bit later, uh, John fourteen six that we sang about earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He knows knows he's going to be crucified and resurrected and ascend to heaven soon. So he prays for his disciples saying, sanctify them in the truth. And he says to his father, your word is truth. Truth makes a big, it is a big deal to Jesus. 26 different times in the gospel of John, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Truth to Jesus really does matter. And if we try to live our spiritual life um, in this kind of fuzzy view of truth, it's, it's, it's just as dangerous as trying to walk around up there on, on that mountain in, in Britain without knowing exactly where we're going. Truth really does matter. Now, we're back here to this passage again. These Christians, I mean, they withstood the external pressures at least in terms of the blatant calls to abandon their Christian faith and turn their back on God, but they succumb to internal compromise in themselves individually and in their church. So it raises the question of how do we remain faithful to the truth? How do we remain faithful to the truth? Now, one of the things, if we want to remain faithful, is to know what we believe and why we believe it. This is something that um, I'm going to talk about on a regular basis. Know what we believe and why we believe it. There are several different organizations that, that take polls and surveys of Americans. Uh, one well-known Christian one is the Barna Group. Uh, Barna Group a few years ago did uh, a survey of 2,000 self-proclaimed Christians. So these are not nuns. They are people who claim to be Christians, just like the people in Pergamum. Um, and it asked them some, a, a series of spiritual questions, asking, okay, what do you believe on this topic? Here are some of the results. It shows the importance of knowing why we believe what we believe. Uh, for instance, it asks, um, I mean, is Satan a real being or is he just a symbol of evil or what is he? About 40% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that Satan is not a real being, but instead is just a symbol of evil. It's very different than what the Bible teaches. Or 20% of Christians believe that Jesus sinned while he was here on earth. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus, he was tempted, but he was without sin. And this makes a huge deal even for salvation because Jesus' death on the cross was not all sufficient. It did not matter that much if Jesus sinned. The only way that Jesus can be the all-sufficient sacrifice and payment for our sins on the cross is if he didn't have any sin of his own to pay for. Yet 20% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that he sinned while he was here on earth. 41% of these self-proclaimed Christians believe that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truth. It's basically the idea of all roads lead to God. Now, these are not necessarily all, all evangelical Christians, but still, these are people who claim to be Christian. And 41% say, well, Christianity is just one branch. You have these other branches as well that all lead to God. It's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. Right now on Sunday mornings, I'm leading a class called Engaging Cults and World Religions. And one of the things that is very clear in that class is the importance of knowing what you believe and why you believe it. Because something that has struck me as I've studied uh, these topics, and even as I've engaged in conversations with Mormon missionaries or 
Right now, over the last few months, I've been talking with uh, a particular Jehovah's Witness who came to my door several months ago and just keeps coming back every couple weeks. We meet in my office every couple weeks. And it, it strikes me how well many of these people from a cultish background, how well they know what they believe and why they believe it. Many times they can def- articulate and defend their beliefs much better than most Christians can. It's a shame, but this is one of the reasons why they are effective in going door to door. Because they prey on Christians who, who claim to be Christians, so they're attracted to this idea that these people can somewhat back up their beliefs by pointing to some scripture, even though they, they frequently take it out of context. But, but these Christians who can't really defend their beliefs, they're easy prey for, for cult members who come in and are able to articulate their beliefs and able to, in some manner, back them up in, in the Bible, even though their, their interpretation is wrong. But, but the Christians, they don't know any different. They, so the Christian says, oh, yeah, that does make some sense. And so it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. A couple of practical things to do to increase our understanding of these things. One, dig into Scripture outside of Sunday mornings. Just read the Bible. That'll help get you well-versed in what's in here. And then also I want to encourage you, read books that train you in how to respond to objections that people raise. Read books about theology. Read books about why do we believe there is a God? Now it might stretch your thinking a little bit. It might be a little bit challenging at first, but I promise that if you begin to dig into some of these books, your ability to understand them and process them will expand over time. And it will really help you to understand what you believe and why you believe it. Now, a second, a key, if we want to remain faithful to the truth, is test what you hear. Because here in America, we are constantly bombarded by all kinds of input uh, through media. I mean, it's amazing how many messages we get. And a lot of these do have spiritual implications. I mean, you turn on the TV. Um, I mean, you, you get various interviews with all kinds of things. I mean, Oprah is probably one of the most influential spiritual um, people here in America today. I would not say that her input is necessarily that great. Uh, it's not necessarily that true. But that's why we have to test what we hear. I mean, you can pretty much predict that every Christmas and every Easter, at least one of the major magazines like Newsweek or Time will have a cover story exposing some new thing that's been discovered about Christianity. Whether it's um, some new book that was written about Christianity from a couple thousand years ago, whether it's some bone box that exposes something new, some new interpretation on something. History Channel will show all kinds of shows about all kinds of things. It's important to ask, okay, is this true? I really like what the Christians in a Greek city called Berea did. I've quoted this before, but I think it's worth hearing again. Uh, The Bereans, um, they had the Apostle Paul there teaching them. It says that they received uh, Paul's message with great eagerness, but they also examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And, and I think about how this might have worked, where Paul probably would have been teaching for several hours at a time at least, which they had much longer attention spans than we do. Um, and then the Christians may have gotten together afterwards, like in Bible studies or, you know, their churches are relatively small then, congregations are. So they would have gotten together and they would have asked, okay, we heard what Paul said. Let's look at Scripture. Does that line up with what is in the Bible? And probably some people gathered there would say, who cares? It's Paul. He knows what he's talking about. Why are we questioning him? 
But they're actually commended there in Acts chapter 17 for taking what Paul said and comparing it with Scripture to see if it's true. Because it's important to test what we hear because this is our litmus test. This is the filter through which we need to run everything that comes our way to ask, is it true? Because truth matters. And the third way that we can, uh, that can help us remain faithful to the truth is to sink our beliefs and our lifestyle. I mean, you think about this idea of sinking. Uh, you sink your phone to your computer. I mean, now it's frequently wireless, but at least in the past, you just took it up with a cord. I mean, now you have the iCloud, you have OneDrive, you have Google Drive, all that different stuff. I mean, when you have these types of things, you want the information to be synced together. It's the same thing in our lives. So we want our beliefs to sync together with our lifestyles. And the reality is that our beliefs and our lifestyles will be synced. It's just a question of which beliefs do our lifestyles sink to. Because we can have our, our statements that we make about our spiritual beliefs. But sometimes there's distance between those, those claimed spiritual beliefs and what we're actually doing in our lives. Then those things aren't synced. Because what happens is there's a deeper level of beliefs that maybe we haven't even examined. And this is why the teaching that we're ingesting and believing is so important. Um, because, I mean, if we're living in a way that's contrary to Scripture but we claim to have biblical beliefs, there's something else inside of us that's driving that lifestyle. So we need to, to hold firmly to Scripture, hold to those truths, and then make sure that our lifestyle is synced up with what we say we believe biblically. Because again, truth matters. Now back here to this passage, Jesus tells them, verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This idea of the sword of his mouth, he refers to it at the beginning of the letter too. He says, I'm the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. This idea of, of his word of truth. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so God's word can be a source of, of instruction and assistance in helping us discern, to discern and live out the truth. But in this case, Jesus is saying it can also be a source of indictment. Of if you're not living according to God's truth, God's word will show us to be false. To be following some way other than the truth. But he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give, him, give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is talking about people who overcome the compromise, who, who return to faithfulness in God. Now, these images here, they're, they're not the easiest to interpret. Scholars go back and forth on what they all mean. Basically, I think each one of them is talking about an intimacy with Christ that is yours when you follow him in spirit and in truth rather than, trying to, than putting up with compromise. I mean, the... The hidden manna, I think, is talking about Jesus being the bread of life who will nourish us. This white stone talks about the purity and the righteousness that can be ours through Christ. This new name that's written on it, if you look later on in Revelation, I believe it's talking about uh, this new name of Christ, uh, the, the victorious Christ that we will know as we see Jesus face to face when we are victorious. And so truth really does matter. Now, a few weeks ago, as I was preparing a message, I came across a quote from Margaret Thatcher. We began this message uh, with a British reference uh, to hiking and stuff. We're going to end the message with a, um, a quote from um, a Brit as well, a stateswoman over there, Margaret Thatcher. She said, if you set out to be liked, 
you will be prepared to compromise in anything at any time and would achieve nothing. She says, if you set out to be liked, if you want to be popular, if you want to be approved of by the people around you, and if that's your highest goal, you'll be prepared to compromise. Because compromise is what you do if you want to be popular, if you want to be liked. So what we need to do is ask ourselves, what is our highest goal here? Is our goal to honor Christ, to follow what's true, or to be popular with those around us? Because there are times where those are going to be at odds. Now, she's not talking about the spiritual realm, but I think it's still true that if we want to remain true, we need to avoid compromise. We need to say, you know what? We're going to be faithful to God and to his truth. And then there's much that we can accomplish. But if we don't remain true to God and his word, we will compromise. And we will not accomplish that much, spiritually speaking. Now, down through the centuries, talking about biblical truth, Christians have put together uh, just various formations of, of truth in a way that's memorable. And one of these things is creeds. And I want to close our time together today by reciting an ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, that comes down to us from just a couple hundred years after Jesus walked this earth. And the Apostles' Creed contains truths that come from Scripture uh, that are important for us to cling to very strongly, even in the midst of a, of a culture in which truth is eroding very quickly. And so I'm going to invite us to stand. Uh, we're going to recite it together, and I'll pray, and we'll cl- uh, close in song. Um, one clarification on the wording of it. Sometimes, as Protestants, as evangelicals, we can wonder, why are we saying we believe in one Catholic church? Catholic is a word that means universal. It means God's church. I believe in what God is doing in his church through Christ. So let's join together in reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, with these words that we just spoke with our mouths, I pray that they will really reflect what we believe in our hearts. And that these will not merely be words that sound nice, not merely be words that have been passed down to us, but they will be words that nourish us, truths that sink with our lifestyles, that we will really live out the reality of what it means to follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to identify those areas of compromise in our lives, to repent, to turn fully back to you, and to live fully for Jesus Christ and for his glory in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in his name. Amen.